turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 16. I made mention in prayer of the missionary weekend that is held annually in our sending church. just saw some photographs uh, yesterday of that event on Friday. It runs through the weekend, but uh, starts on Friday evening. And there was, as one of the speakers, a man by the name of Bill Woods, Dr. Bill Woods. Now, those of you who have been here for a while, well, we'll be familiar with Dr. Woods, and I've heard of him, and some of you may even go back far enough to remember when he was here, and I think a few times he visited here in Greenville. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, you need to be acquainted. Uh, he's one of those remarkable characters, one of those strange specimens that occasionally arrives on the scene in the church, and you could never predict what, how God might use them, and yet you look back on a life that has been powerfully lived. He went to Brazil back in, I think, the late 50s as a young man, and somewhere around that time anyway, maybe into the 60s, but I have a funny feeling it was maybe late 50s, he first went to Brazil and never married, spent his entire life out there, went as a missionary initially, and then realized that there was much more practical need uh, than he ever would have anticipated, and realized that I need to be more than a gospel-preaching missionary. These people need medical help. And he then went and trained to be a medical doctor in Manaus, in Brazil, and that's a whole amazing story in and of itself, because he wasn't the most academic going by his history, and was told as a young man he would never amount to anything. And so you young people that may have heard remarks like that, um, being discouraged and think that it's true, it doesn't have to be, because this man gave his heart and life to Christ, and far from not amounting to anything, he, he may be as close to a living legend that any of us might know. He was recognized by the Brazilian government for his contribution in almost single-handedly eradicating leprosy from the most leprous part of Brazil. In fact, I think probably one of the most leprous parts of the entire world. And almost single-handedly was credited for transforming that region and was given uh, recognition, uh, the title, the nickname, Angel of the Amazon. And you just you know, that says it all. When people call you the angel of the Amazon, you know that God has used you to bring light and life. So, you may go on. I'm assuming the recordings, uh, not just from this past weekend. He was sitting down. He's very old, very frail now, and uh, was seated in the pulpit. And I don't know what he said, but <laughs> he was always worth hearing when he was well, and probably still, even though he is very, very Frail. So you may look that up, but also look up some his book, which is called Angel of the Amazon, if you can get it. Maybe even be in the book room there, and also other things uh, that you can hear on sermon audio. Certainly worth your time for you parents inspiring your children as to what kind of uh, service can be done for God. So with that first encouragement and many sermon out of the way. We come to Luke chapter 16, and we want to read the opening 13 verses of this portion of God's Word. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg, I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do 
that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his lord's debtors unto him and said, Unto the first, How much owest thou unto my lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commanded the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Amen. Ending the reading of God's infallible Word at that juncture, let's seek the Lord and ask for His help. We need His help always, and so do pray that the Lord will come and give aid. Our gracious God, we do again thank Thee for the fact that Thou art constantly moving and working in this world. And we are blessed to have known and witnessed individuals that truly were sold out for Christ. They, they have given every ounce of their being to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have influenced countless hundreds and perhaps thousands. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt be pleased to Continue to bless our brother, Dr. Woods. We ask that I would encourage his heart, whatever his needs might be. The, his memory is, is sweet to so many of us. We pray, God, that thou wilt raise up many more like him. I pray that even from this congregation there may be such that are touched by the same power, that are granted the same grace to be sold out for the Lord. And grant that even this night, this word may be a means of helping and aiding in this objective. So cleanse our hearts from sin, pardon us all our shortcomings and weaknesses, and we beg of Thee for the promise of the Father, the fullness of the Spirit, that this might be a message from God to the hearts of each hearer. We pray, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed upon the reading of our passage tonight that it's, it's not the easiest portion of God's Word to immediately grasp. And in fact, out of all the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which there are about 40, often this is touted as the most difficult one to really get a hold of. What is actually going on? What is the point? How come the Lord Jesus Christ takes a negative example and applies it to his people? How come he uses someone that seems to have no real virtues as far as moral or, or ethical virtues or spiritual virtues, and yet uses them to awaken or quicken the consciences of his people? The general idea here is that even the unbeliever can be more consistent than the believer in how they live and can function as a, a way of helping us see if this is how the ungodly live, how much more ought I, given that I am bestowed upon with all these benefits and um, more knowledge as to how to live this life? I mean, the believer has the benefit of God's Word. They don't, at least generally they don't use it or make use of it. And we have the benefit of knowing that we are serving God and that we live in light of His presence, and we should be motivated for a final reward, which we receive at the end of this life. So, so how come then 
We can find in this world those that are more motivated than we are to live in the right way. The previous chapter, you may remember, was addressed to the uh, Pharisees and scribes. Go back to chapter 15 where it says that there's this crowd that gather around the Lord Jesus to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So he then proceeds to speak this, this parable onto them, but when we come into chapter 16, he has now turned his attention to his disciples, no longer looking at the scribes and the Pharisees and those that murmured against him. Chapter 16 begins, he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man. So he, he, he is endeavoring to teach his people. He has in his heart a burden for his disciples. Now, the Pharisees are still there. They're not far away. They never are. Verse 14, the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. And we will have more in the way of things to glean from what our Lord deals with and what is applicable to them. But these opening verses of Luke 16 are addressing those that, that are the Lord's people, his disciples, his followers. And so it's not, again, it's, it's not an easy passage and I was wrestling over how do I even divide this up? How can I construct this? So this is not my, my best effort in terms of structure, but I trust it will be helpful enough for us to see the flow of what is going on and go away with the lessons that the Lord would have for us to learn. So I've titled this message simply, Wisdom from the Children of This World. Wisdom from the Children of This World. Taken from verse 8, The Lord commanded the unjust steward, because he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way, given the light that we have, given what we are meant to know. Yet it is the case, and by the observation of our Lord Jesus. And I think we see this ourselves, don't we? We see certain individuals that live, and even we admire them. We admire them. We can't help but admire them. Like, how they live, how they conduct their affairs, uh, how zealous and energetic and sold out and single-minded they are in the course of their business. And as I say, we cannot help but admire something about them. So our Lord makes, point, makes the point that this was true even in His day. So look first at the, uh, there is a revelation in the opening two verses, a revelation. He said also unto His disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Now, the scene here is not an unusual one. A man of means would employ someone to help manage his affairs. I mean, we have this today, but in those days it was a little different. It was far more likely that the one uh, employed to be the manager of the affairs would actually live with the one, or at least in the area of the one that he served. The scene is a little like uh, Potiphar and Joseph, when Joseph, though he's a slave in that uh, case, yet he is functioning as a steward there uh, over the, the household of Potiphar. And as he says himself, everything had been put in his hands. And the point of that is that he has authority. He can act on behalf of his master, he has the ability to, to write contracts and sign them, and those things are legally binding. He has that measure of authority. He doesn't have to go back and constantly inquire, can I do this? Should I do that? He is meant to have the skill, the perception, the wisdom, the discernment, the ability to manage the affairs so that the, the master can step back and doesn't have to be micromanaging all the affairs of his, uh, what he has, what's under his care. So, we find in this case, this rich man who had a steward, this steward has not been doing the job well. He has been wasting his goods, it says, at the end of verse 1. And so, we don't know exactly how he was wasting them. Was it through mismanagement? Was it through embezzlement? Was it through some other thing that he was involved with, we're not told, but he is wasting his goods. And then eventually the master finds out. He realizes someone either tells him 
or he makes inquiry into a number of things, and the discovery or the revelation it comes to his attention. Verse 2, he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? This shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that this is happening. Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. In other words, your days are numbered. And yet the language indicates that he desires his steward to tie up the loose ends. Tie up the loose ends, you're on your way out. And so he still retains the authority for this, for this period of time. He still has the ability to act on behalf of his master. As we see, you proceed through the verses and you realize he goes out and engages in, in various other negotiations that go on. But in the tying up of the loose ends, he functions in a way that we might never have expected, which we'll see in just a moment. But the language that is used, I just want to pause for a moment on this. When it says, how is it that I hear this of thee? Verse 2, give an account of thy stewardship. Give an account of thy stewardship. Beloved, this, this, is, this is something we all are going to face one day. We can't help but notice the application in the fact that there's a similar scene that is awaiting every single last one of us, where we will give an account of our stewardship. It doesn't matter who you are. This isn't just for God's people. This is for everyone. Everyone is going to give an account of themselves to God. There's going to be a day when we are standing before our Maker, giving an account for how we have lived. It will be a sobering time. Those of us that are in Christ, we don't have to give account in such a way in which we must justify ourselves by our righteous deeds. That justification is in Christ. Nevertheless, our works are going to be tested. Paul speaks of his works being tried by fire. And those things that are done that are considered wood, hen, stubble will obviously go up in smoke. Those things that are lasting, meaningful, eternal, are akin to gold, silver, and precious stones and will last. You know, every time I think about that passage, it always strikes me the, the, the contrast between the value of these things uh, not just, I mean, that's the obvious part. You have wood, hen, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. The value is obvious of the distinction. What, what, is, what is interesting to me when I read that passage, I can't help, it always comes into my mind, is when you start thinking about how easy it is to find wood, hen, stubble. If I told anyone here, go and find wood, hen, stubble, in five minutes you could be back with something. If I told you, go and find gold, silver, and precious stones, and I'm not talking about the things that are hanging around your neck already, I don't think that counts, but actually finding it, go to where it's found in its original location. You'd be a long time looking to find gold, silver, or some precious stone. One is above the earth, the other is under the earth. One is visible and easy to find, the other is hidden and very difficult to perceive. I think whether I'm right or not, I don't know. But there may be in that even an indication as to the nature of works that Christ values. That often the things that are very public and seen, and I, listen, I live under this, the public, the very visible activity of service to God that appears to be of value, maybe nothing more at the last than wood, hay, and stubble. Whereas the quiet work of God's faithful people, where there's no recognition, no acknowledgement, no one really looking or recognizing what it is that they're doing and keeping account of all the little sacrifices that are made, the Lord sees, and He loves to see it. And it's truly valuable to Him. We will give account of our stewardship one day. It will come to an end, there will be a revelation of our works. And it's very true. We have one life, and then one, one time when we give account. No do-overs, no repeats. Just one opportunity. Charles Studd, C.T. Studd, was a, a British missionary, as many of you may be familiar 
He was born in 1860 to a, a very affluent home and family, well-connected family, and very privileged upbringing. Was even part of, I know that none of you here, and I, here's where I can actually uh, join in with you, where he was one of the first kind of international cricketers. You say, you know nothing about cricket, neither do I, right? That's one difference between the Reverend Mercer and I. He was kind of into cricket, and I have absolutely no clue about cricket. Well, he was, he was one of the first kind of renowned cricketers. And again, as I say, a man of means, of extraordinary family wealth, and yet he gave it all up. He sacrificed it all. God got a hold of his heart, transformed his life, and I think when he was about 25, he he surrendered his life to be a missionary. Went initially to help Hudson Taylor in China, before then also going to India, as well as to Africa, where finally he died. And he gave his entire life for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, inspired many people for the same labor. And he has many well-known sayings, little phrases and quotes that he made, but one that is well familiar or very familiar to many of you is about there's only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And it's taken from a little poem that he wrote, and I have it here before me. I just want to read over it. It gives you the sense of the heart of the man. Here's a man who knows he's going to give account before God. Here's a man who realizes that he has one life, that's it, and then it's over. And he's going to stand before his king and his savior and give account of what he did with that one life. And again, he has all this means and wealth. He he gives it all away. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He, He gives away his wealth and then he gives his body to serve Christ. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for Thee and Thee alone, bringing Thee pleasure on Thy throne. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, Thy will be done. When at the last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all." Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. One life, men and women, one life. You have one shot at this. One. And you have a master who's going to one day say, give account. That's what it says. Give an account of thy stewardship. Give an account. Let me hear it. Let me see it. Let me mark it. 
Oh, how can it be that we, we have all the benefits and all the privileges of Christ's finished work freely imputed to us, making us the children of God, and then stand with these benefits and then selfishly, selfishly retain our lives for ourselves? Ah, there will be a revelation. A revelation... And I can't help you then, and you can't help me. We will give account of ourselves to God. Secondly, a calculation. A calculation. Verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. So he, he makes a calculation here. He realizes, <laughs> I'm out. I'm gone. I'm fired. I'm, there's no more place for me. Eventually, my role here is over. And of course, with that means I will have nowhere to live, no means to provide for myself. Maybe he has a family. We're not told those details. But he immediately starts weighing his options. And so he asks himself, what shall I do? What shall I do? My Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. And he assesses what he might do. He thinks, I cannot dig. <laughs> I don't know if it's his age or if he's just unwilling. I'm not sure. But he had lived a white-collar life, and he's not willing to go to a blue-collar life. He's not interested. And so, I cannot dig. Maybe it's just his physicality. We're not sure. And then he says, to beg I am ashamed. He won't humble himself to do what he has no doubt seen many others do. And so, as the old adage where it says... Necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> he, he looks at his options and he's, he comes up with something. Something. Now, now, I was reading that and thinking about, and this is really an aside, it's not really tied into it, but it, the application is there. certainly popped into my mind. Thinking of parents. Parents that sometimes have a child that sits around and doesn't really know what they're going to do with their life. And they are protected and they are coddled, and they are enabled, and they just kind of fritter away their time with an aimless kind of existence. And I know it can be, I'm not wanting any of our parents here to go away and be really harsh against your children, but, but at the same time, there has to be some negotiation. You can't just let children just live in the house without any kind of aim or ambition or fulfillment. And so, like I say, necessity is the mother of invention. When you think you're going out on your ear <laughs> and you're going to have no means to provide or anywhere to live, all of a sudden you begin to, I'll, I'll find something. I cannot dig. To beg, I'm ashamed. I'll find something to do. Well, sometimes we need to do that with our children. It's the very thing that they may need. Well, verse 4, he, he resolves. I am resolved what to do. When I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he has this great plan for himself. A plan where he, again, he still has authority. He still has the, the, the right, to, the legal right to, to negotiate and write contracts. And so what he does is, he goes, and we're given just two examples. It says, so he called every one of his Lord's debtors onto him. We're given two. So I imagine there were many others. He does the same thing. He goes to them. He figures out how much they owe, and he negotiates, basically saying, look, I will, I will, I will lower this, and, and his, his desire is to do it in such a way that they, they feel indebted to him. He, he negotiates it down, and they're so delighted upon kind of immediate payment, then they will, they, um, they will recognize the great favor that he has done for them. Now, I can't be sure about this, but I, I am aware of this. 
historically, you may know biblically that Jews were not allowed to have usury, excessive usury upon things. So, what they did was they would add the usury into the kind of price. They would price things with the usury that they would want in the final price. So, it's not usury, but they're getting their cut. And so, I imagine what he's doing here. He's not, he's not making it so his master will lose out, but he's making use of that margin he knows exists. And he uses it so that he can, again, negotiate for his own benefit while not really robbing from his master uh, at the same time. And so, this is what he does. He, he negotiates this, and we get this strange, strange. After this calculation, we have then this commendation that comes in verse 8. The Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now, you look at this and you think, this is, this is odd. Is Jesus commending this kind of thing? Not not ethically, not morally. He's not saying, go and do thy likewise. That's not what he's saying. This, that, this man's unjust. What's going on here is unjust. But, but there's a commendation that comes from his master because he did wisely. It's almost like the, the, the master is saying, why, didn't you, why weren't you so motivated to organize things and manage affairs like this Before. So his, his shrewdness, the shrewdness of the plan is commended. The Lord can see what he's doing. <laughs> he's like, I'll, I'll, I have to give you that. You know, I'll pat you on the back for that, for what you have done. And then the remark of our Lord, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. He adds this comment that generally... This can be the case. The children of this world are more perceptive, more zealous, more worldly wise, sometimes more industrious than the people of God. And what motivated it? What motivated it? As soon as the man knew he was going to be called to account, he was motivated. Now, this brings us back to the point. You know you're going to be called to account. You know that. It took this man by surprise. I mean, he shouldn't. He should have known at some point he'd be caught. But you're living your life in the light, in the knowledge, in the awareness that you're going to give an account of yourself to God. And I think this is what the Lord is impressing, that here's a man who realizes, I have to give account to my master and he has moved to do something within his power in that moment. And yet the people of God, the people of God that have light and understanding and know that they're going to stand before God and give an account to their master, just in a slovenly way, live on. No care, no concern, no burden, no motivation, no fire in them. They just coast. This is designed to sting. Again, he's addressing his disciples. You know, you could imagine the disciples, what do you mean, Lord? We've left all and followed thee. <laughs> and he's provoking them. He's prompting them. He, he perhaps sees a certain ease that is developing in their life. We don't know. But our Lord Jesus, again, he said also unto his disciples. That's his concern. He wants his disciples to get the implication, to understand the challenge. He doesn't want them to say, I'm satisfied that the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. They shouldn't be satisfied with that. Christian, you shouldn't be satisfied with that. Now, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. You know, you see, you see these great high achievers in the world. Whoever you want to name. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. You name them all. Bill Gates. I mean, look at their family life. You don't want, you don't want their family life. You don't want their marriages. They've all failed. It's a total disaster, some of them. 
You don't want that. So we're not asking for a level and degree of, of devotion, or we might even say idolatry to a particular cause that discounts the value of other things and wrecks havoc on other responsibilities. That's, that's not what you're called to do. But it still applies, doesn't it? We are going to give account. Romans 14, 12, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So, as I say, the commendation of the, of the master to the unjust steward is meant to sting the servants of our Lord, the children of light. Let me ask you, let me ask you, before we go further, are you a child of light? Because while the application of this text is to believers to awaken them to uh, consider the, the need to order their affairs aright before God, while that's the primary application. There's a distinction that's being made here that would call upon every unbeliever to ask themselves, what am I a child of? Am I a child of this world? If you're a child of this world, this is as good as it gets for you. This scene of time. You're in this world, you're sold out to this world. You're like the unjust steward. You, you really don't have a perception of the eternal, of what God would call you to. It's all about here and now. It's all about self. And since you're so wrapped up in the world, that's, that, this is what you're going to have. You're going to have this world. That's as good as it's going to get. You're not going to get the light. You're not a child of light. You're not going to enter into that eternal day. You're not going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and His people forevermore in that land that is fairer than day. You're not. So you then ask yourself, is this, is, this, is this a good plan that I have for my life, being a child of the world? Is this a good plan? Is it good to live my life a child of the world and not a child of light? The only hope you have of ever being with Christ and being with His people as being a child of light, which, which you can have, which you can be by going to the light of the world, seeking Him for salvation. Fourthly and finally, the application. Verses 9 and following give... Our Lord kind of takes away certain matters. He, he draws from... The language is a little convoluted. There's the, I was reading over it and thinking, what really is the connection here between what he has just said and what he now says? But there, there are connections, and I, I hope that we can draw them out. Verse 9, And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now, mammon itself means money, wealth, profit, things of that nature. Unrighteous mammon often is the language used of carnal or worldly goods. But it's unrighteous because the, the unrighteous mammon is, is, is that which promises much but delivers little. So it's unrighteous. It doesn't, it doesn't give what it promises. So, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness that when you feel they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? And we'll come to verse 13 at the end. But there are a number of things that you can see. Before we look at the text... Just, just to point out, as you look at that man, as you see that unjust steward, there is a single-mindedness that, 
that I think we're to, to see in him and to take away, really driving home the point of, of the, the wisdom of the children of this world, a single-mindedness. When he realizes he's going to be called to account, he becomes driven by a sense of self-preservation. Now, it's, it's selfish, and it's not to be exemplified or to be uh, copied by us. That's, that's, they're not things about him we're to copy, except in this, the motivation, the drive, or we might say the single-mindedness that takes over in his heart. I mean, he, he just all of a sudden, he's, he's, he's willing to do what he can. I can't dig. To beg, I'm ashamed. So, so he's looking at poverty. He's staring at poverty, right? He realizes that whatever he's laid up is not going to last long. To beg is a real possibility for him. So, I mean, that's a real… That, that will kick you into action, if nothing else. And so he's resolved, and he figures out a way of negotiating so that he helps these people and he's looking forward, then they will receive me into their homes. They will look after me given I have saved them so much money. And it, it was significant. The amount that he was saving them was huge. And so they would be very much indebted to him. And so he shows an ingenuity how to acquire a place to live even when he's terminated from his employment. His goals are ungodly, but his determination his energy, his zeal, it's commendable. And so this is what's being driven to us, like we are to learn here from someone like this who is not motivated by the glory of God. So you ask yourself, is what motivates him higher than what should motivate me? He's motivated by self-preservation. I'm meant to be motivated by the glory of God. What should be the driving motivator? What should work and function in our hearts? Now, looking at it theologically, the answer is easy. To be motivated by the glory of God has to be seen as a bigger, more glorious, grander, moving influence in our lives. And yet such is our carnal nature that <laughs> it's like when we're right down in the dust that we're, we're moved to actually do something. And the implication of that then is that we are living in this freedom and place of privilege where living for the glory of God is more theoretical than it is real. Or we can talk a big talk about what it is to live for the glory of God, and it's easy to, to use that you know, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Easy to say, easy to remember, extraordinarily difficult to consistently give our lives to. Very difficult. So, as I say, he's given to what? This, this, this carnal desire to survive. You're given freedom not to be burdened to survive. You have a Father who's going to take care of you. You have a Savior who is yours, and you belong to Him, and you can never be severed from Him and His love. You have all these privileges, and there's just this one thing. Now, I've saved you. Live for my glory. Live for my glory. Let that be your, your whole objective. And we don't do it. We don't do it. Or we do it haphazardly. So, so his single-mindedness is something we need to adopt. Do I really have a single-minded approach to living for the glory of God? Has anyone ever been sold out for Christ and at the end of it uttered words of regret and lament? <sighs> Wish I hadn't given my life to the Lord. Wish I hadn't lived as I did. I've not heard it. There's also here a lesson in preparation, not just single-mindedness, but preparation. Look again at verse 9. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, those the friends of worldly goods, that when you fail, you may receive, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. The steward uses what he can to negotiate and arrange preparation for his future. That's what he's doing. He's doing what he can to prepare for his future. 
He has found out something about his future. You're out of a job. And now he goes about trying to change what that might mean for him in his future. He's preparing for the future. And the Lord uses that then to, again, awaken his disciples. This is his disciples he's addressing. That when ye feel, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. He's using this strong language so that they get the point. He is doing this for for just a future that is purely in this world. And yet you're living in such a way that the future you're meant to be living up to and thinking about and laying up for is eternal. You're meant to see. That's how he's moved for things of time. And what he's prepared to do to make preparation for his future, as bleak as it is, I mean, he's he's still going to die at some point. It's all going to end for him. But here the children of light who have a, a place in heaven, an eternal existence, eternal life, And they're meant to live with that future governing what they do. So it becomes a lesson in preparation. And of course he he managed his what he did what he what was in his hands, it was again very shrewd. And did well. But I think, I think also here, it's not just the future, but it's how he manages the carnal things. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. They, they, it's like how he managed the temporal things for the sake of his future. And so I think also in this is language of how do you manage your temporal things for the sake of your future? So undergirding this is, is even a lesson in, re, in relation to the material. Because you have certain material things. And they actually should be stewarded by you in a way that you are thinking about the future. And not just the future of your own little existence here and having a place to live in the future. It's all fine and well. But also thinking about that, that giving account before God and entering an eternal habitation. So I think there's lesson here in giving and just more, let me say stewarding, maybe that's a better way to put it, stewarding the material things that we have, a lesson. I'm not one that speaks on, on giving. I don't know, have I ever? I don't know if, I, if I've done it. Four years I've been here, I'm not sure I've really talked about about money in any meaningful way, and I don't plan even to do so tonight. This is a generous congregation. I don't need to berate you. I, I, I had my eyes opened some time ago when I saw, it was like the first or second Sunday of the year, where some of these churches, they have this big drive for, you know, making these vows and giving these massive churches with their massive budgets, and they're like berating their people and guilting them into to giving. I thought, really, is this, is this what you're to do? And then other, thing, other books that you read that tell you, you know, deal with this subject kind of quarterly. You know, keep other churches that's weekly are always putting before you financial things. We don't have to do that here, thank God. We don't have to do it. The Lord has supplied abundantly for this congregation and made us a blessing way beyond the walls of this church, and I'm so thankful for it. But the, there's a reminder here because there may be one or two Maybe you don't have the full philosophy of what I think is the majority of this church, which is generous and bountiful in how you manage your material things. So that being the case, let me just take a moment and encourage you as to why the way you manage your material things is important. Because it is. It is. You say, I don't see tithing in the New Testament. Well, maybe not. But it says a whole lot about how you see what you've received from God. Now, I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and you may want to turn there just to see why, how the management of our affairs and our giving and sacrifice is important, and it makes a statement about us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 
And what I'm going to, I'm not going to deal with all these verses or exegete them in any detail. I want you to see a repetition. It is a repetition of the word grace. Now, you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is, is, is boasting, really, in the, the liberal generosity of the Macedonians, those at Philippi and that region, and how they're giving relief to the brethren in Judea, and just the, the generosity. And he's using them to then recommend the same to the Corinthians. But how does he do it? So, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Why are they generous? Grace. Verse 2, How that in a great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. That's their example. And grace undergirds it all. Verse 6, Insomuch that we desire Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Well, it can be translated gifts, but it's a similar idea. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. Verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You see the repetition of grace? Go to the next chapter, chapter 9. You find the same thing. We'll just look at a few verses from verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, are of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, He hath dispersed abroad, He hath given to the poor, His righteousness remaineth forever. My point, grace, grace. That's why, that's why people are generous. Why is a believer generous? It's grace in his heart. It's evidence of grace grace. It's not just discipline. It's not just management. It is grace. So, should, should you struggle with this? And sometimes we imagine that it's the wealthy that struggle, but sometimes it can be those with more meager means that can really struggle with this. This is evidence of grace. The giving, the generosity, the management of your affairs that invests in a future that you can't yet see with the physical eye is evidence of grace. It's a lesson in preparation. Also, going back to our passage, a lesson on faithfulness. Go back to Luke 16, verse 10. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful... In the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So faithfulness is the primary trait that you want to acquire and develop. And you're, you're being faithful in whatever meager things that you have, whatever has been given to you. You're to be faithful in that. That's, that's what you're to do. Now, if you find that that you're being unjust and little, why then would you be any different with the more? You, people imagine, well, if I had more, then I would, be, I, would be, I would give more or I would do more. No, that's not how it works. That is not how it works. In fact, one of the best things to see is how when you have nothing or very little and you give it over to God, whatever it is, material or whatever you have, you just give it over to God to see Him all... He sees that you've been faithful in the little and often multiplies in ways in which, as the time goes by, you're, you're just amazed at what God has done. So what's important here? What's important here? It is simply faith. You have to believe and trust the Lord. We want to... We so desire to be used by God and to be seen as faithful before Him. 
And there appears to be even an indication here of, of future responsibilities of believers, maybe in eternity. The faithful in that which is least is faithful also. In other words, what you're given here in this world, that may dictate what's given then in the next, how you are utilized in that next world. And the question then comes, it's a rhetorical question, verse 11, if therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, in other words, if you can't be faithful with, of, with that which is of really no value, right, worldly goods, right, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter much, does it? It's just, it's just stuff. If you can't be, if I can just make, paraphrase it and make it really simple, if you can't be faithful in meaningless stuff, how on earth do you imagine you're going to be faithful with that that is of real value. Gold, silver, material things, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. And tithing and giving and sacrificing of that, so what? It's just stuff. And if you can't adopt the mentality that this is just stuff, it's not really anything, there you are, Lord, you can have it. I mean, it really isn't all that much. If you can't see it that way, if you if you look at the if you're like the man who sees his gold and his silver and all his you know retirement, he's like holding on to it as if this is my identity. You will have nothing in the life to come. No response. You can't be trusted because you don't understand the value of things. You don't actually understand the value of things, not from God's perspective. Did Jesus come looking for stuff? The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. I was just struck by that the other week when I was reading through Proverbs chapter 19 and it has all these instances of poverty and perverse lips. It's like repeatedly it talks about poverty and then perverse lips. And I thought about how our Lord is so wonderfully exemplified there because, you know, it's talking about it's being better to be poor than be a man of perverse lips, Right? there's the Lord. He can embrace poverty, and it's no no dishonorable thing for him to do that. I'll embrace poverty. He will not embrace perverse lips. See, he understands the value. He understands what, what matters perfectly. And his people are meant to learn that. The stuff is just stuff. It's just stuff. And if you haven't learned it yet, believer, let me encourage you because this, these, these things are very fleeting. They can be there one day and gone the next. And I am encouraging you now, take every cent you have, all that you possess, and you put it before the Lord and you say, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. Because you know what happens then when you lose it? It's not you losing it. It's the Lord distributing it somewhere else. It's his. It's yours, Lord. It wasn't mine anyway. I remember that as a student. <laughs> it's just coming back, you know, the memories that pop in randomly. As a student, you don't have much. That's maybe putting it mildly. And I had just been praying. I just start in college and you know, take the little that you have and you, you've all these new, you're sort of managing your affairs. Again, you're in a new station of life. You're not working now the same way and figuring out how you're going to make ends meet. And I literally had just been praying, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. The little that we have, it's all yours. And a few days later, I'm driving to college and I, not in any dangerous way, but it was sufficient enough. I rear-ended someone at a roundabout. And no one was hurt, nothing major like that, but there was little damage in their vehicle. My radiator was cracked, so immediately my car couldn't go very far and had to be towed and all the rest of it. And Anyway, the, the final bill of it all, fixing theirs and my car, I could not... <laughs> that was not budgeted, right? You know, you know how it is. That was not budgeted. And I'm looking at this bill and I'm thinking, why? 
And then it just come back to me. You gave it to the Lord. It's His. Stop worrying about it. Stop worrying about it. Like, Lord, it's yours. You took it away because it's yours to take. That's fine. I'm completely content with it. It's fine. That's a good place to be. That's because then you, you're not invincible, but you, you create a kind of protection around the losses and the uncertainties of life. So, let me encourage you then. This faithfulness is what the Lord's looking for. Faithful with what you have. Giving it to Him and looking to the future and realizing if you can't be faithful with the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true, really valuable things? Things that really matter to God. It's not going to happen. If you've not been faithful in that which is another man's who shall give you that which is your own? If you can't learn that, what God has given, why will God give you then direct responsibility for things of your own? It's not going to happen. Okay, well, time is pretty much gone. I'll come back to verse 13, God willing, another time. But I just, I just want us to, let's just close with this thought. Our Lord uses very strange language here. We've already seen that. And it's all toward His disciples so that they who think they are so sacrificed and, and, and given over to the cause realize that many times they are embarrassed by the devotion of men in this world. And that's the case for us. And so I go back to the language of C.T. Studd and I say to you, child of God, do you understand only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Do you comprehend what that means? That means you hand over your ambitions you hand over your material things, you hand over your gifts, you hand over your intellect, you hand over your friendships, you hand over whatever you have. You give it to God. And who knows? Who knows? Do you read the story of Bill Woods? And you see a very simple, let me say without being derogatory to him, someone who probably was born and lived with far fewer resources and natural ability than the vast majority sitting in front of me, especially you young people. And he transformed a whole region of one of the largest nations on the planet with one of its greatest problems. A man sold out for Christ. You never know. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May God impress that truth on our hearts. Let's bow together in prayer. Where do you stand before God? Are you, are you ready to die? Are you in a place where you could happily leave this scene of time, enter into the presence of God, and give an account of the deeds done on the body? How's your spiritual life? How's is your profession? Is it real? Is your love for Christ evident? Is there that ongoing spirit of self-sacrifice? Are you all on the altar?
I can't tell you what God will do with your life. All I can tell you is, you put your life in the altar. It's amazing. It's amazing what He can do with it. Lord, I pray, help us all. We are weak. I feel it myself. The pull of the world, the distraction of responsibilities, the invading influences of a privileged generation that assault our minds and frame our hearts, not after thy will, but after another master. We pray for grace to see more clearly and for the penetrating influence of thy word to rule and reign in our hearts. Bless thy people here who are even in these moments handing over their hearts and lives to thee. Give them grace. See the sincerity of their desire. See the weakness of their intentions. And yet look at the sincerity of of what they long for, to just be an instrument in the hand of their God. Lord Jesus, give much of thy spirit to thine own blood-bought people. And may we see in this place many simple, ordinary people doing extraordinary things by the power of the Spirit of God. So hear us and help us all. Bless our time of fellowship. Go with us this week. Bless thou the work of our hands. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.